0: I'm now going to read from Philippians chapter four from verse 10. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good for you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out for Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts, what I desire is more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory for ever and ever, amen. Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, amen.
1: Well, the city of Manchester has a long, cold, dark winter. We've been here for 12 years and it's the same every year. But that means that when spring finally arrives, it feels all the more sweet. And over the last few weeks, spring has been making its way back into the city. And it is just lovely to sense the change of season. There's something fresh in the air. You can smell it. There's something joyful kind of rising up. And you can see the flowers starting to come out of the earth and bloom again now melissa and i often over the last year during lockdown and restrictions have been taking the same walk through from withington where we live through old moat up round huffend park and then through uh, the side of southern cemetery and back up to home and what we've seen over over the last months and particularly the last few weeks is spring is coming back and first of all you s- we saw the crocuses coming through and the dark purple Uh, And little bits of yellow of those colours, and then they sort of made way for daffodils. And that's when, in this country, you really sense that spring is here when you see those hosts of golden daffodils. Spring is here, and the flowers bloom again. Now, that is exactly the image that the Apostle Paul uses in our text today when he's talking to the Philippian Christians. It's there at the beginning of the reading in verse 10. And and you might have missed this. I did the first time I read it. So let me read it again. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Now, it's a little bit obscure in the English, but the original language for renewed is the word that they use for blooming again, for flowering, for growing up again renewal and remember this is a man who's writing from a gloomy roman prison at the time of of writing or dictating this letter he's probably chained to a big ugly praetorian guard but he is full of joy and we've sensed that note all the way through the letter great joy here he says mega joy because here he reveals they have renewed their concern for him again and this concern is a polite way of talking about money, or to be less crass, material support, financial support. The Philippians had sent Paul a generous financial gift to help with his needs in prison. And we can assume that it was a significant gift because they had sent someone to bring it. Remember, there's this man called Epaphroditus. He's made the long journey from Philippi up in Greece to wherever Paul was in prison, and he's brought this money, this collection, with him. And you wouldn't send someone on a long journey if you were just going to send them a fiver, would you? I mean, it's obviously something significant. And Paul is absolutely made up. This gift means a huge amount to him. Look at verse 10. You were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. In other words, they hadn't been able to send support for some time. He didn't really know what they were thinking. Maybe he didn't know if they were ashamed of him because he was in prison or they'd sort of gone cold on him. So now the gift's come. It means so much to him. Verse 14, it was good of you to share in my troubles. So he's going through real distress, real tribulation. This troubles is, 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 a, is an intense word. And he, he says you're sharing in it by this support. Verse 15 talks about the matter of giving and receiving. Verse 16, you sent me aid again and again. Verse 18, I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. So I find it fascinating as we come to the end of our journey in Philippians and the end of this series that right at the end of the letter, Paul starts talking about money. (laughs) Probably not what we would have expected. I wonder... How do you feel about that? Now, if you're British, you may find it a little embarrassing. Because, you know, the British are quite awkward as a culture, generally speaking, but especially awkward when we talk about money. Other cultures aren't quite as squeamish. They're more practical. But we we don't talk about money. We don't typically sit around talking about how much we earn or what we've got saved up. That kind of thing. Is it crass for Paul to speak as he does here? Why does he home in on this right at the end of the letter? Why is it so important to him? And the answer is that this kind of partnership is vital because it reveals whether you really get the gospel. Let me say it again just just to let that sink in. This kind of, of partnership involving financial support is crucial in the New Testament because it reveals whether you really get the gospel or whether the gospel's really got you. And so we're going to think about partnership today. Most of our teaching today is on this partnership that's revealed here. Partnership between Christians in one place and Christians in another, or a church in one place and believers, ministries, other churches somewhere else, built around the good news that they believe and share in. But there's actually more hidden in here than just teaching about partnership, because embedded within the heart of our text is a hidden gem, and it is something that we all really want. In fact, we all really need it. Because in the middle of this great example of partnership, we read of something so desirable that it's worth more than gold and rubies. It's contentment. Contentment. Paul says, I've learned the secret of being contented in any and every situation. Wouldn't you like that? So I've got two points from our passage today. The first one is the paradox of partnership. And the second is the secret of contentment. Firstly, the paradox of partnership. And I'm going to actually uh, use a real life letter. Okay, it was sent by email, but I've printed it out for a little bit of a dramatic effect here. An actual letter from Turkey, from a Turkish Christian man which is what Paul was, which was sent this year in 2021 from Turkey to our church. Would you like to know what he says? Hey, Mike. This is a little bit less formal than a letter to the Philippians. Hope you're doing well, brother. We haven't talked for a long time. He he has a couple of personal bits. He says, I've been praying for you guys. Things over here are interesting as well. You can check in my update. Here it is. And he, he gives a web link. And in that link, it actually shares that six Turkish pastors are being deported from the country. And this, this man who wrote this letter regularly receives death threats from other Turks. And I know about that, although he doesn't reference it here. Um, if, if you or any of the people in your church would like to have a personal update, I'm more than happy to do a video call because of the coronavirus, we spend a lot of time on the computer we can easily set up. And then he says, also, we are thankful for Grace Church's continued support brother now more than five years. I didn't know it was five years. But more than five years ago, we started a partnership with this Turkish brother and his church. And he remembers it because that's what happens. And that is the, the nature of partnership that Paul is talking about here in the letter there is an inextricable link between financial support prayer and emotional support and the person who's the recipient of the finances knows that you're giving and that means you care enough to pray as well and they feel great emotional and spiritual support from it these things are linked and it's the same with Paul and here in this this first section the paradox of partnership I want to draw out Five lessons about partnership and I I was helped massively in this study by an old friend, Justin Mote, a very fine Bible teacher who was a great supporter of our church in its early days. So Justin helped me to find these points. Firstly, partnership is good. Verse 14, it was good of you to share in my troubles. Now this word good, sometimes it's used to talk about things being done well or excellently. It's sometimes translated beautifully or other times it's translated kind. The English Standard Version says it was kind of you to share my trouble. The the Net Bible says you did well to share with me in my trouble. In other words, partnership like this is just a really good thing to do. It's a lovely, kind, great thing. Now, back in chapter one, where we started our journey, Paul had written to the Philippians, In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he, that's God, who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And some people think that the good work that God began in them is actually the work of partnership a really good thing that God has done in you if you are able to partner with other people and such partnership secondly is not a one-time gesture look at verses 15 and 16 he says moreover as you Philippians know in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel when I set out from Macedonia not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only for even when I was in Thessalonica you sent me aid more than once when I was in need they shared with him in the matter of giving and receiving this was a two-way relationship it was reciprocal he had brought the gospel to them the good news of Jesus they had heard it and responded in faith he had invested himself in them he'd suffered in Philippi and now they wanted to support his work and it was an ongoing relationship they didn't just say goodbye and forget him And even when he left their area, which was called Macedonia, and he went to Thessalonica, they still found where he'd gone and sent more support. They didn't have to do it. Nobody forced them. It wasn't a contract. They wanted to. And it says they did it more than once, perhaps even again and again. So partnership is good. And this kind of partnership is ongoing. Now, there's also a surprise here in these verses because... The third thing we learn is not everyone does it. Not everyone does it. Verse 15, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. It's making a point there that this church was actually unique in the depth of their commitment to partnership. And the sobering reality for the Apostle Paul is that there were plenty of other churches that he had started or that others had that didn't share in support. And let's be real shall we? We can be reluctant to partner with others as well, especially when it's costly. We never feel, do we, that we have too much money. Now, I don't think I've ever met a Christian who told me, I just, I've just, i got too much money, I don't know what to do with it. I've never met that person. I'd love to meet someone like that and maybe they could take me out for lunch. But when we're looking at our resources, we can be tempted to grip them rather tightly and not want to let them go. We can feel when we look at a a big bank balance or there's some credit in there, that that gives us some sort of security. Maybe we feel a bit safer, a bit more relaxed. You know, you feel you've got a cushion. Oh, you know, there's something there if things go wrong. There's a sense almost of satisfaction. uh, As though we're, we're safer now because we've got money. But of course, that actually is an illusion because money can't protect you from the things in life that will really hurt you. Money can't protect you from cancer or from other ill health problems. Money can't protect you from betrayal. Money can't protect you from heartbreak. Money can't protect you from death. Money can't protect you, actually, from losing your job. So money really is, is a kind of fake comfort blanket, but we, we still cling on to it. It's illu- it has this illusory quality. Somewhere else in the Bible it says... The love of money is actually the root of all kinds of evil. And so because money has this grip on us, we can instinctively be much less generous to other people than we are to ourselves. Our budget for giving away is so much tighter than our budget for spending on self. And listen, we're all guilty of this. It's true of us personally, and it can be true of the way we think about our church's resources. Because when the appeal comes for money, financial support, It never quite seems to be at the right time. (laughs) Now, over the last year, I don't know, 18 months, I have seen appeals from other churches that we know to help them with a building fund. They're trying to buy a building. I have seen a request from a training institution, a very fine training institution, to help them meet their budget. Uh, We've seen a request from Acts 29 Great Britain to help fund that work as an organisation which helps churches get planted in Britain, and requests from missionaries who need support and requests from the gospel partnership we are part of in the northwest. And listen, all of these are real, all of them are good, and yet the heart can easily say, oh, what about us? Now the fact is, Grace Church spent an entire 12 months without paying for a building, which saved us £20,000. We did also lose some giving along the way, but we're still quite in in good health. But there's a temptation, and I'm just talking about church leadership level, to think, oh, it's rather nice to have that money in the bank. Let's just keep it there for a rainy day. But what Paul is reminding us here is not everyone does this good, ongoing, excellent work. So let's be careful that we're open-handed with the resources that God has trusted to us because there's something much higher going on here and this is really quite glorious because Paul teaches fourthly that partnership is worship, it's worship. There's something profound going on when we partner with other Christians in gospel work. Look at verse 18, I've received full payment and have more than enough. I'm amply supplied now that I've received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. Listen to what he says about the gifts. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. Now, Paul here is reaching deep into his Jewish roots, into his deep love of the Old Testament. And he finds these wonderful, rich phrases from the temple worship from the sacrifice of ancient Israel, where people would bring the best of their grain offerings and the best of their animals, and they would come to the temple in a wonderful celebration feast day, and they would make these sacrifices of grain offerings and burnt offerings. And you know, the temple, we might think of the temple as rather a cold thing, like a a big old Catholic church, but the temple was more like a massive barbecue, The priests are cooking up meat. You can smell it in the air and there's joy and people are taking the food and they're feasting and praising God who've given them the harvest. There was this wonderful joy of bringing sacrifice to God. And it says that to God, the the smell as it rises from the cooking food is like a fragrant offering. It's a sacrifice that's pleasing to him. Now, in the Old Testament, sacrifices are given to God As worship, you think of it as a a vertical axis. We're giving God worship. But in the New Testament, something radical happens. is that when you worship God vertically, you actually do it by giving sacrifices horizontally. So you're giving to other Christians or other churches or other ministries. Paul says it's it's a fragrant offering. It's, It's acceptable sacrifice. It's worship to God. He loves it. Now, we typically think of certain things as worship. We often think about singing and music. And we even find ourselves saying things like the Zoom worship for the bit that's about singing. Or we we think about prayer as worship because, you know, prayer is very profound. It's very reflective. We're obviously engaging with God. Or we think about worship as certain kinds of intense emotional experiences. By the way, those things are all part of worship. But did you know that when you put your hand in your pocket, when you open your purse or wallet, or when you make a bank transfer to fund gospel work, that is a fragrant offering pleasing to God. He loves it. It's worship. So, Partnership is good, it's ongoing, not everybody does it. It's actually worship. But fifthly, why did I say that this point was the paradox of partnership? Because giving, giving away, does us good. It actually does us more good than the people we give to. Look at verse 17. Not that I desire your gifts, he says, what I desire is that more be credited to your account, Paul saying, "Look, you've just sent me this amazing gift. I don't, I don't need any more, and I'm not asking for any more, guys. But what I'm really interested in is creative accounting. And Paul doesn't mean anything uh, suspect or fiddly. He means, um, listen, the way that, that accounting works in in God's spreadsheet, in God's economy, is that uh, by your giving away, you have got a continuously increasing profit going on in your account a bit like a a savings account now these days savings accounts are at record lows you can barely get half a percent interest but there was a time where you could get quite good interest rates on savings accounts so if you put your money in there after a year you would made five percent say and then the following year obviously you get more than that because you had some more in already and interest gets compounded and Paul's using this idea of continuously increasing profit in the account of the Philippians as they give away. So what's the account? He's obviously not talking about money. Because they're, getting, they're giving money away. What he's talking about. Is the opinion. Of the Lord God. It's not that the Philippians are earning their salvation. Or buying their way into heaven. They know that salvation is free. It's a gift of grace. It's that God is delighted. When your faith. And your hope and your love find practical expression in partnership. Your account in God's eyes has a healthy credit balance. God looks at you and sees that you are being fruitful. And your life is bearing that fruit that's in keeping with being saved, belonging to Jesus. You see, what God is really pleased by isn't the smell of Lamb cooking or the sight of grain offerings or the sight of money clinking into an account. What God is really pleased by is a generous spirit that proceeds from love and trust. Because God sees the heart. And there's the paradox of partnership, which is that giving is actually receiving. You may give away, but you receive the favour The affirmation, the delight of God on your life. And that is in line with the paradox of the Christian life, isn't it? Dying to self is really living. The poor in spirit are the richest of all. The Philippians at some level had understood that. They got the gospel. So they gave. Let's just pause for a moment and ask, have you ever realised that giving is a privilege and a joy. That when your hard-earned cash goes out of your account or out of your wallet to support somebody, another Christian or gospel ministry, that it is actually a privilege that you are able to do that and it doesn't matter about the amount. If you haven't got much and you give, God is just as delighted with that. And God loves that because it is worship to him. And so... One immediate practical application is to encourage you to start giving if you haven't done so yet. Uh, or if you haven't reviewed your giving for a while and it's worth a, a freshen up, perhaps circumstances have changed or you've had a pay rise or you've received an unexpected windfall, let me encourage you to look at your giving to your local church. That's appropriate as the, the focus of our giving as, as Christians is to support our local congregation. And I think you can find details of how to give on our The Grace Church website. Uh, We, by the way, as a church are committed to giving over 10% of our giving to mission and church planting, so you know that over 10% will immediately be given to those things. But also, beyond our local church, that we're ready to share generously as individuals with those in need who we hear about or we have a personal connection with. Partnership, it's good. It's ongoing. Not everybody does it. It's worship and the paradox is by giving, you're actually receiving. Now, as I said, the bulk of the passage is modelling teaching on partnership, but there's this rare jewel in the middle of it, the secret of Christian contentment. Look at again at verses 11 and 12. I'm not saying this, he says, because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in one. Wow, wouldn't you like to live like that? Wouldn't you like to be able to say that? I'm just contented all the time. Isn't this one of our biggest problems? Not that what we have or we don't have, it's our heart's response to our circumstances. That's the real problem. Because you know, if you're anything like me, you may feel there's a lack. You may want something. I don't know what it might be. You want to buy something, acquire it, and finally you get it. And what do you find that within a few days you're actually hoping for something else? We're all like that. It's really, really obvious to those who are parents of children. Children are so transparent. But, you know, we're, we're just like them. And Paul shows us here that he is resilient He has a a contentment that's bulletproof. He's so joyful, even in prison with hardly anything except the clothes on his back, and yet he's bubbling over with joy. So how can we learn to be contented and satisfied no matter what? What's the secret? The answer is in our text. Verse 13, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. The strength that God gives. And verse 19, my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Now, that's quite a lot of riches of glory, isn't it? You know, If God's resource, God's bank, bank account that he's going to meet your needs from is the, his, his riches of gl- glorious riches, I think he's going to cover it. So in other words, the secret to being contented is to know that God gives you strength and God will meet your needs. Let me say it again. The secret for us to to learn contentment is to know, to believe, that God will give me the strength I need and God will meet the needs I have. And the key that connects our contentment with our ability to be generous partners is this. Do we really believe that God will meet our needs? Do you really believe it? Do you really think you can trust him enough? You see, if you believe that you can trust God that much, then you will be free. You'll be free to be self-forgetful with your finances, not to fret over them and worry about them and want to store it all up for yourself. You'll be free to be generous in partnership If you really believe that God will give you the strength that you need and meet all of your needs, then you will be blessed with contentment because he's got it covered. Whether I'm full or hungry, whether I'm well supplied or poor, God loves me and has supplied my needs. But if you don't trust God and if you don't really believe that God will give you strength and meet your needs, then you will not be free. You will be bound by your bank account. By conserving your time and energy. By guarding the fence and watching the boundaries of your life. Because being too involved with other people would just be too costly and you don't think you can do it. You won't be free to be in partnership. And then, friends, you will never be contented. So at the end of the day, it's quite simple, I think. Do you trust God enough? Do you trust God enough that he will meet all your needs, that he will give you the strength that you require? Do you believe in the Jesus Christ of Philippians chapter 2, the one who was in very nature God yet did not consider equality with God something that he could exploit or grasp for his own advantage but made himself nothing, he emptied himself and became a servant. He was obedient to death, even to death on a cross. And therefore God has exalted him to the highest place, the place, the throne above all other thrones, so that one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. You know, that Jesus is the one who you rely on to get through life and for strength and your needs. Can you really trust him? Knowing that he did all that for you, that he made himself nothing and went to the cross for you. Do you think you can trust him now with your needs, with your bank balance and with your strength? Will he keep his promises? You know he will. Let's go to him in prayer. Gracious Lord, we thank you for this marvellous passage. We thank you for how, in one sense, a quite ordinary thing, a financial gift, generous gift, prompts Paul to this theological reflection. And gives us an insight into what the gospel ought to do in our hearts and minds. And I pray now that you would do something in us too. and Especially that you would point out to us by your spirit. Those areas where we are not free because we don't trust. And help us to be liberated, to be generous. Because you have been so generous to us. Amen.